about five, six years ago, we had done a Sunday school class on these stories, and it was uh, something along the line of the good, the bad, and the ugly, or something like that, I think is what it was called. But uh, at the time, as I was looking back through that, and I thought, we live in a time, we live in an age when I, I think the stories that Jesus tells are relevant for us again. And uh, not that they haven't been before, but they are very relevant for us now. We live in a time where it's easy to slap a label on somebody. And by slapping a label on somebody, I immediately alienate or remove myself from maybe responsibility to be a part of their life or the need to show any interest at all in them. Maybe they think differently than I do. Maybe they look differently than I do. Maybe they uh, come from a different place. I don't know. We can have all kinds of things that we'll label people for and with. Um, and yet labeling people is that way of kind of ordering people in a place where, okay, that's those people, that's those people. I don't have to deal with that. All right. I've got peace in mind in my life. And I was reminded of uh, some parents who were very nervously uh, preparing for their teenage daughter's first date. And um, I almost changed that to a 30-year-old daughter's first date, but I thought that would, not, that's a little more personal for me. Uh, but they get even more nervous. I got an eye roll. I love that for my daughter. All right, they get even more nervous um, when they open the door up and outside the door, they see the date. And he's on a motorcycle, black leather jacket, and he's got a helmet uh, with all kinds of things all over it, covered in tattoos, piercings and places they didn't know you could pierce. And uh, they uh, a little bit nervous about that. It looks like he's like 29 years old. And the father politely closes the door and looks at his daughter and says, honey, I'm nervous uh, about this date. And she says, well, daddy, why would you be nervous? Well, your date, I'm just not sure he's a very nice guy. Oh, daddy, if he wasn't nice, would he be doing 5,000 hours of community service? And so... Uh, <laughs> It's easy to look at people and make judgments, to make labels, and to put people in boxes, right? And, and we, we all do it, um, for the better, for the worse, we all do it. And, um, but Luke tells stories, and it's interesting as you read the stories that Luke records for us from Jesus, it's oftentimes, most often, if not all of them, it's about people that are labeled, it's about people that are labeled different kinds of things. He tells stories that are labeled sinner, people that are labeled tax collector, people that are labeled Pharisee, people that are labeled all kinds of things. And Samaritan, there's another one, uh, all kinds of things that he's going to find and tell us stories of, of people, of names that are just common things to us. But if you live in the time when Jesus lived, you would slap a label on them and that would put distance between you and them. You didn't have to deal with them. And so I think there's a relevance to us that can help us as we interact because in a world in which we tend to be polarizing more and more from each other, I think um, God and his people need to be less of that. We need to be less labeling and more honest conversation, less labeling and more honest care for people who may be very different from us, but, but we can still care and love people and, and be a part of their life, even though we may have major differences between us. And so we come to the first um, story we're going to look at today. If you have a Bible, it's in Luke chapter 7. It's actually, the text is printed on the back of your sermon outline. If you want to look at there, it'll also be up here. Or you can look in your Bible or on your phone. Lots of ways. You, you know, what I'm trying to say is you don't have to miss it, okay? And so uh, we're going to read the context here from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. And um, I, I just want us to, to see the setting that Jesus' story comes from that he's going to tell today. 
It says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So one of the Pharisees invites Jesus for dinner. We're going to find out later. His name is Simon. Um, he invites Jesus to eat, and Jesus eats throughout the Bible with all kinds of people. He eats with the worst of the worst and the best of the best, if you want to label them that way uh, in the Bible. And so he's eating with all kinds of people. And on this day, he happens to find himself eating in the home of a Pharisee who has invited him for, uh, for a meal. And so Jesus was eating, and, and the Pharisees' intentions are mixed. We're going to find as we go through this that oftentimes people were trying, would hang out with Jesus, not with always pure motives. And I don't think Simon's motives were completely pure either. Um, but what's going to happen by the end of the story is that you're going to find that every meal that Jesus ate was a dinner with a sinner. And that little phrase is what I want you to think, because there's a person labeled the sinner in this text. They've been labeled. They've been ostracized. They've been pushed to the margins of their community because they're the sinner. And what Simon would never admit or think about himself, well, I'm not the sinner. She's the sinner. And what Jesus is going to bring him to or bring us to through this story is that Jesus ate meals all the time and every one of them was a dinner with a sinner. Whether they admitted it, whether they would recognize it, whether they would own that or not. And so there's a level of humility and honesty and um, humbleness, I guess, that I hope that comes to all of us as we think about this text here today. And so the text goes on to say this in Luke chapter 7, verse 37 and following. It says this, there was a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Imply from what that most of the text and the context of that that she was probably um, uh, pretty sexually active, uh, maybe a prostitute, maybe someone like that who had a reputation in her community um, as as not being up to snuff by most people's estimation of her. So a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life, and she learned though that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. That would have been, if she was a prostitute, that would have been a tool of her trade um, that she would have had. She probably may not have had much, but she would have had that kind of thing. And so she finds out, and we can make an, an, a guess, an educated guess, I think, that she's probably had some interactions with Jesus before. This isn't the first time she's met him um, because of her response to what you see here. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And so apparently she's heard something, she's had an interaction with Jesus at some point enough for her to know that this guy is different. She, he has provoked some kind of response within her where she recognizes that this man treats me different than other people treat me. This man shows me value or this man has respected me or this man has, has shown me love, he's shown me grace in a way that most people have not. He didn't label me. We might say. And so as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, his feet with her tears. And then she did another thing that would have been very culturally unacceptable in that time is that she had no towel, which most people, some people speculate that maybe she didn't come there thinking she was going to cry, but, but she begins to cry. And so she's making a mess with her tears. And so the only thing that she has is her hair. And so she undoes her hair, which was a cultural faux pas in that time. And she uses her hair to wipe away the tears from his feet. And then she kisses his feet and pours perfume on them. And so imagine you're sitting in that room watching this scene play out. 
and think about what Simon the Pharisee is thinking. You don't have to wonder what he's thinking because it tells you in the next verse, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, begins to put a label on Jesus here, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. She's one of those kinds of people. She's one of those people that we don't deal with, those kinds of people. We don't have time for those people because we're better than them, is what the implication is, that I'm not that and that she is that. And so the danger of the, of the text or the story is that Simon apparently thinks that he's better and that he thinks that Jesus is less because he's letting this woman, this lady who acts like that and does those things, is allowed into his presence, is allowed to be with him in this kind of setting. Simon would never do that. Simon had separated himself by labeling her, and yet Jesus allows her into his presence. And not just into his presence, but to do this weird thing that's going on as she weeps and wipes his hair, wipes his feet with her hair and the perfume. And, and so you've got all these sensory things going on, right? You've got, you're hearing her weeping and you're smelling the perfume and you're watching this scene and it's playing out before you. And there are really two, two thought processes going on for the, for the woman. She is sitting there thinking how amazing is grace, that grace is indeed an amazing thing. She has been touched by Jesus in a way that she has not been touched by, by a lot of things. Apparently, she has been moved to the place of thinking, this is different for the first time in my life, maybe for the first time in a long time. I have found grace. I have found mercy. I have found love. I have found something good. And she's touched and she weeps over the goodness of grace shown to her. Doesn't diminish anything she may or may not have done, but it just, she's amazed by the fact that Jesus would love her and that he would care about her. And so you find this woman who's amazed by this grace. And so there's that part of the scene that is beautiful and is awesome and is noteworthy. Someone just touched so deeply that Jesus would forgive even them. And so that's going on in this room. But there's also another thinking going on, and it's a little more stinking thinking, if I can say that. And so it comes from the mind of Simon that he's not thinking a grace is amazing. He is thinking this is disgraceful. He's thinking, what a disgraceful scene. And he's put off by it. He's disgusted by what he's seeing because this woman has dared to come into his home and Jesus is daring to let her do what she's doing to his feet. And he's disgusted. He finds it disgraceful and he's put off by it. And, and you can just tell by the tone of his thoughts of what he is thinking and, and just the processes that Luke tells us that he is completely put off by this story. And so you see, he has used labels to separate himself from other people. And that's a common thing. We do it in politics, we do it in communities, we do it in all kinds of things. In, in every arena of life, it's easy to use labels to distance ourselves from people. Not having to care about them, having to think about them, having to be involved in their life, we use labels. And we put a label on someone, call them a sinner, you're out of my life, I don't need to worry about you, until Jesus shows up. And Jesus brings with him people that bust through the labels that the religious elites like the Pharisees, like Simon, had created in his culture. And so Simon believed that it was part of their job as the religious people to make sure you kept your distance from sinners, from people like that. But Jesus didn't live by that philosophy. Jesus practiced a different way. 
And so Jesus leads to our story in verse 40. Um, it says this, Jesus answered Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he says. He goes on in verse 41 to say two people, here's our story, two people owned, or owed, excuse me, money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simple story, not profound. Any of us can understand that. If you owe someone a lot of money and they come and forgive that, you, you, can, you can appreciate the, the feeling of, wow, that's awesome. Thank you for wiping my slate clean. Thank you for forgiving that debt. And so Simon's easy answer in verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who loved the master more is the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon the most profound question in the text, I think it's simply this. Do you see this woman? You see her? That's a silly, silly question. Did Simon see her with his eyes? You bet. He saw her. He's quite disturbed that she's even in his house. He sees her. But that's not the question that Jesus is asking. He's not asking, do you see the, the trampy woman who's entered your home here? He's asking, do you see her? Do you really see her for where she is and what's going on here? Because her heart is being transformed by grace. Her heart is being made new. And she's, she's expressing that, that in Jesus, to Jesus. And, and Jesus is saying, do you see what's going on here? And he asked the question, do you see her? Do you really see her, this woman? And he begins to begin to kind of chastise Simon, which is a bold thing to do in someone's home. But he says, Simon, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was a very customary thing to do. If you were a good host, someone came to your house, you had a basin of water, it's dirty and dusty outside, you would make sure that their feet were washed, that that was just a customary welcome to my home. Hey, let me wash your feet so that we're good here. So you didn't give me any water though, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. That's a little different, right? Didn't wipe, just not just a basin of water with emotion, with hurt, with, with grief, with, with gladness. Her tears have wet my feet and she has wiped my, wiped, washed my feet with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, he goes on to say in verse 45, which is again a customary greeting. If you look at any Far Eastern cultures, there's that kiss on the cheek that they do. That custom, that's what he's talking about. There was no kiss, there was no greeting, no handshake of welcome, we would say in our culture. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil in my head. Again, a customary thing. It's hot, it's arid. We probably stink a little bit. Again, the oil would kind of calm us and cool us and um, kill some smells. But, uh, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins, so he's not glazing over anything. He's honest that her life has not been perfect, but her many sins are forgiven as her great love has shown. So she's displaying all this because she knows what I was, I am not now. I am forgiven. I am made new. And there's this beautiful scene that she celebrates that. Her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, implying Simon, you don't think you need what she's just received. You don't think you need forgiveness because you think you're okay. You think you're fine. You don't need the label of sinner because you're religious. You're a prideful, arrogant, religious man. And so you don't think that you really need forgiven because uh, and so you love little, you show little love to me. And then he goes on and finishes the text by this. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so there's this story that Jesus tells about debts that are forgiven that simply illustrates for us, I think, some truths that I think as we think of these other stories, I, I think this one captures the heart attitude that God calls us to and that all of us um, need to be pursuing after and, and monitoring our hearts for. And so three implications I just want to, to show you and then we will... Uh, um, Go in peace, as Jesus said to the woman. Uh, it says this, three things I want you to see. The first thing I want you to glean from this is this. I want you to be excited that Jesus forgives sinners. I think some of us have been in church for a long time that we really, we know that up here, that yeah, Jesus forgives sins, but we stop feeling that. We stop feeling the weight. We stop feeling the beauty. We stop feeling the appreciation and the awesomeness that Jesus forgives sinners. And so it becomes a transactional thing, right? Most of you go to the bank on a regular basis, maybe, and you deposit things or you take things out. There's no emotion there, right? It's not an emotional thing. It's just a transactional thing. But this woman had just done a major transaction that she carried a, a large debt in her life. She felt the pain of that. She felt the shame of that. And it was now gone. She was forgiven. She was made new. And... It wasn't just a transaction. She was grateful. She was appreciative. She was moved to tears the fact that Jesus could forgive her. And she's moved by that. And so when Jesus asked the question, do you see this woman, Simon? He's not questioning Simon's vision, but he's questioning his heart. What do you see when you see this woman, Simon? What are you seeing here? Tony Campolo many years ago wrote a book called Who Switched the Price Tags? And in the net book, he, he, he shared an experience he had in a classroom. He was a college professor, and one day he was teaching, and he had a classroom. Uh, he was a Christian, but most of his students were not. And so he was just trying to, to lead a conversation that would ultimately kind of contrast Jesus with other world religions. And, and so to do so, he used this question. He said, what would major world religions say about prostitution? And so they just had a conversation going around different world religions, just asking what they would say about that. Well, they had a lively discussion, and finally he asked, well, what do you reckon that Jesus would have said to or about a prostitute? And Campola was preparing himself eventually to lead, to talk about the compassion, the mercy that Jesus showed through his ministry in places like this text. But in the course of the conversation, there was a Jewish man, not a Jesus follower, but just a Jewish man who, who raised his hand and responded, well, Jesus never saw a prostitute. Well, Campola was immediately taken back and he began to open his Bible and share stories that would say, hey, this, this is a place here where I can show you many places he, he encountered um, folks like that. And the Jewish man interrupted him and said, Dr. Campolo, you, you didn't hear me. Jesus never saw a prostitute. And again, Campolo was moved to open his Bible and try to share more verses to, to illustrate that. And again, the man said, you're not listening to me. Jesus never saw a prostitute. And suddenly Campolo understood what he was saying. And he wasn't saying that Jesus never physically saw. He was saying that when Jesus looked at someone, he looked beyond their situation and he looked beyond their own perceptions and society's configurations of them. He always saw the whole person. And he was right. That Jesus looks at us and you have labels in your life. Some of those labels are painful and hurtful and, and 
sad parts of your life. Maybe it's times when you were a kid and you got a label because you were something or you weren't something and you got labeled. Maybe you're an adult now and you still carry some labels around in your life and um, that's one of the greatest tools of the enemies is to just label you thinking, well, God would never love your label because that's what you are. Several years ago, two years ago, actually, Zach and Tessa uh, Taylor were here for service. And a couple of years ago, and on July 1st, we went to Kentucky and they got married. And, and I had this beautiful blue shirt that um, I looked stunning in, I might say. Um, but I had this beautiful blue shirt that was new for the wedding. And I, and I wore it for the wedding and then wore it for a few days. I loved the shirt. It was comfortable. Um, it, uh, it was great. And so, but then I wore it one day at home and I think I was barbecuing and so when, if you ever watch me barbecue, it's much like Old Testament sacrificial rituals. There's much flame and all kinds of blood and all kinds of things. And so, um, and there's much need for forgiveness of sin because of the things that are going on in my life. And so, um, but anyway, anyway, I think in the course of that, some of the grease, maybe the smoke kind of got on the shirt. And so it kind of got these little splotchy things. And I, I don't think they were very visible to other people. Maybe they were, but, I, but, but whenever I wore that shirt, no matter how much I tried to scrub it, no how I tried to clean it, it still wore those marks uh, in my mind. Though that was a stained shirt. And so I quit wearing it. I don't know if I still have it. Probably not. My wife, do I still have it? I still have it. That's one thing that hasn't been moved on by my wife. So praise the Lord for that. So anyway, but you can move that one on because I'm not going to wear it anymore because it's stained. And so, um, but you go through life and, and a lot of us have things like that, right? Whenever there, we know there's a stain, whenever there's a broken place of our life, there's always the shame um, the fear of, of accountability, all those things that go with that. And so we kind of live that way with some labels and some shame and some stuff. And, and I would just remind you to not stop appreciating the beauty and be excited that Jesus forgives sinners. That's just a cool truth that church people need to be reminded of and feel, not just know. We need to feel that sometimes, that Jesus forgives sinners, including me including me in my mess of a life that sometimes I bring to the Lord. And so that leads to the second thing. So you get this beautiful scene of this woman who comes and she rejoices, she weeps, she's overcome with emotion because Jesus would forgive her. But there's a second thing that as we look at Simon that I want you to see, I just want you to be warned about trusting in my goodness instead of God's goodness. You see, what Simon illustrates for us is the bad theology of trusting in yourself to be good enough for God. To trust in yourself to think, you know what, I have been good enough and I keep enough rules, I keep enough laws, I do enough good things that are better than people like her that make me okay with God. And I think Jesus came to bust that theology up and to do away with it once and for all. Say, quit trusting in yourself to be good enough because you're not going to succeed at it. You see, the Pharisee, like people like Simon, played the comparison game. That if I can compare myself and I can find enough people that are below me and I'm good enough, better than them, whatever them is, or whoever they are, I guess I should say, um, then I'm okay. But there's a danger with the comparison game. You see, the woman who came and just realized I'm trusting in God's goodness to forgive me and to save me, she walked out of there. You know what Jesus said the last phrase? Uh, your faith has saved you, go in peace. There's a peace that comes when you're trusting in Jesus' goodness that is not in your life when you're trusting in your goodness. Because what happens when you're trusting in your goodness? There's always that little thing in the back of your mind that says, well, what if someone's doing it better? What if someone's playing the game better than I am? Am I gonna be good enough? 
Can I do enough? Am I living enough? And there's always that nagging fear that I can't, I'm not doing enough. And so you're driven and there's no peace in that because it's all placed upon you and you're not a very good um, burden bearer when it comes to sin, but Jesus is. And so Simon illustrates for us the, uh, the dangers of just trying to trust in yourself to be good enough. And Jesus is trying to get Simon to see that every meal he had before the woman was there, he was already having dinner with a sinner and that Simon was the sinner and Simon wasn't seeing that. And Jesus wanted him to see it, that you're trusting in yourself, Simon, and you can't do that. That's not enough. Trust in me. I am enough. And that leads to a last thing that I just want you to see. Um, we'll finish with this statement. Uh, I think it's this. This is kind of the heart of this. It'd be disgusted at the ugliness that a high view of self can produce. It's not very often that I ask you to be disgusted. Now, And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean that in an honest way. I think you read this story, and it's easy to be disgusted at Simon, right? Most of us would look and say, what a jerk. What a jerk that guy is. He's looking down on her and thinks she's nothing and he's all that. And and boy, there's there's a Simon, though, that can live in every one of us if we're not careful. Because it's easy for me to use labels on other people to elevate myself, put other people down. I feel better, but... If you're watching that from the outside, that's ugly. And so one of my prayers as I went through this and thought about even my own life is just, God, would you help me to be disgusted at the ugliness that a high view of myself produces? Help me not just to admit it, but to be disgusted by it because I'm never gonna change it unless I'm disgusted by the thought that, man, there's a part of me that can be arrogant. There's a part of me that can look down on people. There's a part of me that can separate myself and think I'm better than them. And I'm not. And so God, help me to be disgusted at the ugliness of pride in my life. Help me not to just, yeah, it's there. I'm probably, I'm probably a jerk on some days, but God, help me to be disgusted. Help me to feel the same level of, I, guess, I, don't, I think Jesus is disgusted at Simon's behavior. His little rebuke, hey, I came in here. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't welcome me. You didn't do anything. There's a level of disgust that Jesus has. He loves Simon. He's trying to lead Simon to a good place. But he wants Simon to see the disgust of, of arrogance. And the church, the world, but especially the church, because we can sometimes fall into that comparison game, the church can be a place where self-righteousness can sometimes find a pretty comfortable home. And so we have to fight against that. We have to work against that. We have to work really hard to say, God, would you please show me places where I just think I'm better than people. Show me places where I walk around people instead of embracing hurting people because I just think I'm better than them by labeling them or whatever. And so I would just ask you to stop and think this week and just say, God, let that be your prayer. God, would you help me to see the places where arrogance and pride are driving me to have a higher view of myself than I ought to and give me more of a heart like the lady in this story. Give me a heart like that that rejoices and is amazed that Jesus would forgive and celebrates the fact that he did give me more of that heart and less of Simon's heart in me. And it's something beautiful when you find someone who experiences something like that, like the lady, and you see that at work. When I first moved to Burnside, Illinois, 23 years ago, whatever it was, um, there was a guy who had just become a Christian before we got there named George. Um, 
have an interesting story. His wife had prayed and prayed and prayed for him to become a Christian. And then he finally became a Christian. And then she kind of drifted away from Jesus, but he was passionate and still is. Every time I see George, he's on another mission trip. He's serving someplace else. He just loves Jesus. But his life was changed in dramatic ways from what it used to be, selfish and um, indifferent to anything good, but now he's just all in on Jesus and serving and loving people for Jesus. And, and uh, I will never forget the day we were doing worship and uh, George was on our praise team and, uh, um, and he was up there singing along. And it, to be honest with you, it was one of those days where I just was going through the motions just the, song, the words were on the screen, going through the motions. And all of a sudden there was the lyrics to a song about falling on your knees before Jesus. And George didn't do a casual thing. Actually, I wasn't even looking when he did it. I just, I was startled, but he just fell to the floor, like literally fell on the floor. I won't do it here because I couldn't get back up, but he literally just fell on the floor on his knees and it woke us all up. And what was George doing? He wasn't trying to make a scene he just loved Jesus and the songs that I fall on my knees before Jesus and he just fell on his knees and, and the rest of us were just going through motions. And I always remember that scene, um, first of all, because we had to reinforce the stage in case George did that again. I'm kidding, but, but we don't be careful, but, but it just woke me up to that. Man, there's somebody who has the heart of this woman who was just so grateful for all that Jesus has done for him and the rest of us are just kind of complacent to it. And so would God awaken a heart within us that just is humble like that? And of all the things that we're going to look at, we're going to look at these stories going forward and lots of them, Jesus is always, one of the things he always does is the person you think's the bad guy is usually the good guy. And the person you think is the good guy because they're the religious people or the people who seem to have that the other, there's a problem in their life. And I hope that as we walk through these stories going forward, that there's always going to be that spirit, that heart and desire within us. God, awaken me to any place where there's this self-righteousness, there's this prideful thing, there's this thing that I think I'm good and, and others are bad. And get rid of that from me and just give me this humble, broken, excited heart that Jesus loves me and has forgiven me. And let me live from that heart, not from the arrogant heart like Simon has. Deal. So let's pray for that over the next few weeks. And let's just see God at work. And I hope in my heart, I hope in your heart, that God just humbles us in, in neat ways, that we're more inclined to love God from a more pure place, that we're more or we're less inclined to just label somebody and not really look at the person, not really see them as a human being who maybe have all kinds of mess in their life, but they, they just need somebody to see them. And may that become alive in us these next few weeks. Let's pray together.